Please turn also to the New Testament. New Testament, our text for this morning is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This also is the reading of God's holy word. John 3, verses 1 through 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we go to our God together and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of it. And its authority in our lives. Father, you have said in your word that we must be born again if we are to see, if we are to enter the kingdom of God. Father, we acknowledge that it's not something that we do. It's not something that we can achieve by all our strength and all our might. Father, instead it is you who freely gives eternal life. That you give spiritual life when there was once only spiritual death. Father, we pray, even as the word goes forth, the gospel call goes forth, we pray, Father, that you would give life to sinners. That if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, that they would embrace the good news of the gospel for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we acknowledge that um, all we have is breath, but you are the one who gives life. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted. We thank you and that your servant will be humbled. In Christ's name, amen. About um, oh, 13, 13 years ago, I was serving as an intern for uh, a church in, in San Diego. And the, uh, the minister there, a friend of mine, very godly man, very wise, very very faithful minister and preacher. He had, a, he had a grandson who was part of the church. Let's just call him James. James was five years old. 
And James was a very rambunctious little boy. So he noticed as the church there had communion every Sunday and that the, the elders, when, when it came time to serve the supper, the elders would come forward and they'd sit down toward the front. And he noticed that in unison that there was, this would happen. And uh, he, he wanted to be able to join them. And he looked and he said, oh, wait a minute. They're all wearing ties. So one week, he put on a tie. He told his mom, I want to have a tie. So he wore a tie, and then he tried to join him. And, and then his mom said, no, 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 you got to come back. And he said, oh, man, it's not the tie. And he said, well, what, maybe it's the shirt. I, I, I should be wearing, they're all wearing dress shirts. I got to wear a dress shirt. So then, so he comes wearing the dress shirt and the tie. And they're saying, no, 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 you, you, go, go, go sit back down, James. And then he noticed, because in that church, all of the elders and the minister had beards. So he said, ah, I got it now. It's the beard. So then he, he gets some of his uh, what is it, Halloween costume set. He puts this, this massive beard on, coming up thinking, you know what? Now I will be received among these men if I have the beard. And again, they told him to sit down. And perhaps at times you might wonder, maybe before you came to know the Lord, what is different about these people? What is different about a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian versus a non-Christian? Is it they, they walk a certain way? They have the secret handshake. They, they sing certain songs. They listen to certain music. They, they um, uh, wear a certain hairstyle. You start to look throughout, throughout time, throughout uh, the millennia. You look across cultures. No, it's not... It's not the hairstyle. The, the goal of Christianity is, is not that we would bring button-down T-shirts and ties all over the world for them to look just like us. No, no, that's, that's not the goal. That's, that's not the goal at all of Christianity. And here in this passage, it's as if Jesus is cutting to the chase with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, I've noticed these things about you. And, and it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to cut right to the chase. This is, this is what you need to see. And unless you're given birth from above, you cannot see it. And so here, we understand the importance of being born again or born from above. That this is the true heart of Christianity. It's, it's not walking a certain way. It's not singing particular songs. It's not how many chapters of the Bible you read each day. It's not the books that you read. It's not the, the stations you listen to or watch, per se. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's fellowship with God. It is God who gives new life to dead sinners. It's not a work of man. It's entirely the work of God. Here... In the Gospel of John, the great theme that John gives is that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. He presents Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And he begins, notice in chapter 1, the way that John begins the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And it's as if he's saying, hey... You've read the book of Genesis, haven't you? Genesis chapter 1. When you read that... What John is doing is saying, hey, look, I, I'm going to give you a parallel. I'm going to parallel Genesis 1 with, with this New Testament from the Apostle. And he says that Jesus was, from there, was there from the beginning. He always was. 
And anything that was created was created through Him. And there is nothing that was created apart from Him. And here, what we ought to understand is, you know what? It's not suddenly Jesus shows up in the picture. In the New Testament, Jesus is, was active in all of creation in the past. He, he was the one through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. And that it's God's design. Jesus always existed. The second person, the Trinity, was, was always... It's not like he, he was created uh, at, in theory, 0 AD or 0 BC. No, no, no. He, he took upon himself human flesh then. He always existed. He could not be created because he is God. And, and here, what we have is that John is revealing this man, Jesus. And the first was creation, and, and then the, the fall, and, and Jesus being active. And then we have the increasing circle. So John the baptizer, he's the voice of one calling in the wilderness. In John chapter 1, verse 29, Look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the forerunner, the guy who comes before is saying, Hey, that is the Son of God. He takes away the sin of the world. So that's the recognition. And Jesus later on says, If you can accept it, John, the baptizer, was the Elijah to come. So they were asking him, Who are you? You look at Malachi chapter 4, that God said he would send Elijah. And Jesus is saying, that was John the baptizer. He's the one who was pointing ahead. And then, then he comes to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He cleans out the temple. Right? Makes a, a whip, drives out people, drives out the money changers and the sellers. And then he makes this claim, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And God's people then, the Jews, were, were thinking, you're out of your mind. This great temple we built 46 years. Are you out of your mind? Are you going to raise it in three days? And this, J John has a lot of these recorded sayings of Jesus. These statements that are paradoxical. People just completely misunderstand. This, this passage has it too. And then in Jerusalem, after, after this major event, driving out the, making a scene in the temple... You have this man, Nicodemus. He shows up at night trying to talk to Jesus. And then later in John chapter 4, you have Jesus speaking to, of all people, a Samaritan woman. So in this passage, what we see is that regeneration is God giving spiritual life to dead sinners. And it's the beginning of your new life in Christ. Regeneration is God giving spiritual life to dead sinners and is the beginning of your new life in Christ. We have the first point. We have two points. First point is the necessity of the new birth for salvation, verses 1 through 3. And then second, the nature of the new birth unto salvation, in verses 4 through 8. So this first point, the necessity of the new birth for salvation, in verses 1 through 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here we give you a little bit of a re review. So this, this is a series on the order of salvation. So last week we talked about effectual calling. So if we try to go back from the beginning. If we look at what man sees, what we see is that the gospel call goes forward. And we believe that we respond to it 
and, and then that's all we see. So the gospel call, God uses the gospel call effectually to call. So the preaching of God's word, essential for effectual calling, essential for the new birth, the regeneration. But we see that the order of salvation is deeper. That began in, in Romans 8, chapter 30, began with God foreknowing his people. Not foreknowing facts, not foreknowing our decision, because he, he would only foresee that man, every man rejects him. But he, he knows personally people. So God foreknew people. God predestined. He made a plan to save them. He predestined them. And then he sends the gospel forth indiscriminately, the gospel call. He just sends it out indiscriminately. And, it, and it's not as if uh, everyone is owed the opportunity to hear the gospel. There's nothing like that. That God sends us out indiscriminately. And to some, he gives the effectual call. And then within this preaching of the gospel or the reading of God's word, the gospel call, he also gives new life to sinners who were dead, but he gives life through the means of the word and by the power of his spirit. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering, well, it seems like effectual calling and regeneration are very similar. Or, you know, you, you look at the Westminster Standards. If you, if you look in the back of your hymnal, and then you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, you have... Uh, effectual calling, and then there's no chapter, there's no separate chapter that says regeneration. Now, perhaps the way we ought to explain that is that uh, you have the the continental church, so the continental European church, that they have this term regeneration, and uh, and then the the Scottish Presbyterian church had effectual calling. And the way we ought to understand it is that effectual calling encompasses regeneration. Uh, it's helpful to, to see this and understand it because this passage, John chapter 3, specifically speaks about this new birth, which is regeneration. And in other words, the way we understand it is that in this gospel call, going on discriminately, God effectually calls. And this effectual call encompasses uh, this doctrine of regeneration. Perhaps we can say that there is a different focus in it. Effectual calling focuses on God giving the ability uh, to his people to respond to the gospel call. In regeneration, God is giving new life where there previously was none. So here, effectual calling uh, is focusing more on the response of man, a conscious response, when in regeneration, there's like this unconscious thing that, that someone who was dead is now living. And then the response for the evidence of that new birth is, is this conversion, which consists of faith and repentance, that the, the man who, who loved his sins loves his sins no longer. He begins to love Christ and cling to him. And perhaps also some challenge this, this idea of this order of salvation even, because oftentimes what we see is a cascading effect. That a cascading effect, meaning there are many things that stack up together that seem kind of instantaneous all at once. The gospel call, and within it you have the effectual call. That someone who is given new life and regeneration, new spiritual life, that uh, immediately we, we witness that spiritual life and that they're believing the gospel and that they're repenting of their sins. And all those things come, come together. They, they have to coexist. Uh, and we have here then 
this person of Nicodemus. It was a man, the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You would think, you look at the Gospels, look at all four of the Gospels, and look how often the mention is made of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, of the, of the religious leaders among the Jews. And how often Jesus, in his interactions with them, how many of those interactions are negative? How many of those interactions are actually Jesus condemning these religious leaders? You notice here, though Jesus, he's not mocking Nicodemus, he is rebuking him, perhaps. Uh, but you notice that that tone is completely absent with this man Nicodemus. There, there's no, there, there's no anger. Uh, there's, there's no condemnation of this man. See here, God has people all over the place that the elect are are kind of spread out. Paul was a Pharisee, right here. You have Nicodemus being a Pharisee. Is it wrong to be a Pharisee? Well, before the time of Christ, about two centuries before, the the Jews noticed that, hey, with the spread of the Greek culture, the Greek language, that there was a very negative influence on their religion. So you can imagine, back then, people, everyone would have spoken Greek, and they would have learned Greek. And then the Greeks brought their culture of of idolatry, of polytheism, and with it all the negatives. And here, these Pharisees were those who wanted to be separate. So that's in fact, that, that's the meaning of their name, is separate or separated. And the movement began as this reaction to the idolatry and, and the worldliness of the Greek culture. So you can think about it. This was a good thing, that, that the Jews desired to have a pure religion. Hey, we, our people are being changed. Our standards are changing. So these Pharisees then were the strictly religious. And they followed not only the some 600 or 600 or rather laws from the Old Testament, but they also followed their oral tradition. So they had oral traditions along with it to, to interpret those 600 or so laws. So here, perhaps you can say that, that this man Nicodemus, of all people, was a very religious man, being a Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews. This is not, this is not a political, he wasn't a civil ruler. He, he was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So there were Jewish councils in probably every province or every city, but he was part of the Jerusalem's uh, Sanhedrin. So th this was the highest court in in the body of Judaism. There were 70 men or so. And here, as a Pharisee, he would have been the minority group. So you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees were those who, uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in angels and demons, and they, they rejected certain parts of scripture. But the Pharisees accepted, you know, not just the first five books, but the, the law and the prophets, right? So here, of all people, Jesus should have been thankful, perhaps, that uh, from a religious perspective, that Jesus was encountering someone of religious significance. Now, you would think that he could have talked to this man, Nicodemus, of all kinds of things. See, he didn't have to do any work. This man actually found Jesus. He, he came to Jesus. 
He came to Jesus at night. And we can begin by saying that we don't, we don't really know exactly why. Some, some think he was out of fear or shame. Uh, he wanted to conceal his conversation with such a controversial figure because uh, <clears throat> we kind of know it. No one wanted to be thrown out of the synagogue, right? No one wanted to be excommunicated from especially him, having being of the Pharisees and of the ruling, the ruling class in the Sanhedrin. He didn't want to lose that, perhaps. <clears throat> Here, what we can say is that so early on in Jesus' ministry, there, there would not have been a lot of public opposition to him. So we don't, we don't exactly know why he came at night. But we think about his words. So here's Nicodemus. He, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, meaning teacher, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus is, hey, it's as if he's saying, Jesus, I can see you. I see you. I see that there's something special about you. He's saying, hey, these miracles that you do. And we're left wondering, wait a minute, what, what miracles is he talking about? We, in chapter 2, we have Jesus' first recorded miracle, that of turning water to wine in, in Cana. But we don't have uh, many of these counts, but apparently he did them because uh, here Nicodemus notes them, that he did them. These signs, which are miracles. So here Nicodemus is saying, you're something special. We, we see that because uh, God must be with you in some special way. And have you ever been in a conversation where there's an elephant in the room, right? So there's the elephant, whatever that elephant might be. Hey, uh, what nice weather we have today. Uh, and, and no one wants to address that elephant in here. Jesus, he just goes ahead. He addresses the elephant in the room. And for some of us, all of us, we, we don't know exactly what's going on in people's hearts, in their lives. Jesus knows everything perfectly. So it's as if he's, he's, Jesus is answering the question that Nicodemus hasn't yet asked. It, it's as if you, you look at the rich young ruler, right? So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, uh, was it, what must I do to, to inherit inter- eternal life? So he, he asked the question. Rich young ruler asked the question. Nicodemus either was hesitant to ask the question or wasn't quite there yet. Jesus says, hey, we're just going to cut right to the chase. Let's, let's just address the matter. So let's, let's just pass off whatever small talk you got here. And think for a moment about Judaism at the time. There was an understanding within Judaism that so long as someone did not deny the faith, apostatize, uh, or suddenly start to live a very outwardly wicked life, they thought, hey, those Jews, we're all all part of the kingdom. We're all saved. This is what they believed. You realize that that's, that's apparently not all that different from Christianity right now in, in 2021 or perhaps even for the last few hundred years or whatever, whatever it might be. Everyone kind of thinks, hey, so long as, you know, you stay out of jail, right? So long as uh, you're polite and you're nice to people. And, and I remember this friend of mine from high school, she talked about how 
She grew up in Texas, and she says, over there, yeah, you know, you, you dress well, you drive a nice car, and, and you say, sir and ma'am, hey, aren't we all saved? And she, of course, she was, she was mocking that, that view, but that, that's, that's how people think. And maybe that's true in Minnesota, too, not just in Texas. And, and here, Jesus is addressing this falsehood among the Jews. Hey, we're all safe so long as we don't deny the faith and, and uh, you know, we're, we're not living outwardly wicked lives, scandalous lives. We're, we're all safe, right? And, and Jesus is addressing this very matter. He's, he's shattering. He shatters. He shatters that view. He says, truly, truly. So here, it's, it's not as if Jesus says some things that are uh, mostly true or true some of the time, and then truly, truly, those are always true. No, no, he's always speaking the truth. But here, what he's saying is, hey, you need to listen up exactly what I'm saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, let's listen very closely. This is the true heart of religion. It's not... What kind of titles you have in the Jewish church. So how many titles you have in the Christian church. Those are immaterial. Immaterial. What you have here, Jesus is saying. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's this dual meaning to this born again. Born again. Born from above. There's a, there's a dual meaning. And we'll see later, Nicodemus interprets it the other way. So he thinks about it as in a, a born again rather than born from above. So what Jesus is saying, you have to be born from above. You're born from the spirit. And what we ought to understand in this, for a man who is carnal, Romans 8 speaks about how uh, the, carnal, the carnal mind does not submit to, to God's law, nor can it do so. So it's not merely a matter of choice. There's a matter of inability. There's an inability to submit to God. So it's like you have a dog. Well, hey, we're trying to hide from, for whatever reason. We're trying to hide while we hunt animals. Or we're trying to hide from people trying to take our lives. And you have a dog and it's going to bark. And you could tell the dog, hey, listen, don't bark because you're going to give away our position. We're all going to die. He's not going to stop barking. He can't. And, and so also here, you think about uh, a carnal person outside of Christ without new life. He can't stop sinning because that's his nature, just like the dog who barks. He can't change his own nature. And he can't see the kingdom of God. And here Jesus explains it two ways. In verse 3 he says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so it's as if Nicodemus is saying, Hey Jesus, I see something special about you. And Jesus is running back, Hey listen, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So it's like whatever you're seeing, it's not sufficient that you've seen that. All kinds of people have gone to Jesus. You think about the lepers, right? The ten lepers. And one went back to thank Jesus. How many people were healed by Jesus who weren't necessarily saved by Jesus? How many people witnessed his miracles, but then they went to live another day and, and never followed Jesus Christ, were never born again? How many people are part of Christ's church who, who benefit from like the overflow 
of God's blessings to the church. But they never have embraced. They never, their eyes were never open. They don't embrace Jesus Christ as He is. So there's this need to be born again. When you think about seeing the kingdom of God, imagine a person who was born blind. A person who is born blind doesn't know what seeing is. So imagine a person born blind. He's not going to say, you know what I'm missing? I'm missing the ability to see because they don't know the difference. You see, you have a person who wasn't born blind, and then sometime later in his life, he loses his sight, then he can say, hey, I lost something. It's called the ability to see, and I need it back. But the person who was born blind, can never, he can he never understand what he had, because he never had it. And then when he meets other people, he's talking to them, and, and then the other person says, hey, you're blind, it means you can't see. And the person who's born blind would never be able to understand what that guy's saying because he doesn't know that the other guy has this ability to see that he doesn't have. And in many of this, in much the same way, so it is regarding spiritual life. The person who's spiritually dead, he, he doesn't know what spiritual life is. Other people talk about this joy and uh, treasuring God and worshiping Him and praising His Son and, and dying to self and... The person who's spiritually dead doesn't quite understand why people live like they do. It doesn't quite make sense why, why they would do that. They can't see. The person who's spiritually dead can't see the past the things of this world. 1 John chapter 2 talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. What is the person who's spiritually dead going to do? He's going to live it up here. I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to work hard, make lots of money, save up for my retirement, and someday I'm going to let all of those things go because I cannot take it with me. And then I'll answer to God who is judge. I hope you can see here, it's as if Jesus cutting off Nicodemus in his conversation it's not enough to recognize that Jesus is some great teacher or a miracle worker. That's not Christianity. That's not the sum. That's not the whole of Christianity. It's not just having a, an admiration for Jesus and his miracles. That, that's, that's not the mark of true conversion. All kinds of people witness him doing miracles and acknowledging, well, no, no, these, these people, no, we, we, know, we know Bob who was blind and, and Jesus gave him sight. We, we know the guy who was lowered through the roof, the paralytic, and he was healed. Was that a miracle? Yes, that was a miracle. Are you going to worship and follow Jesus Christ? No, I, maybe sometime later in my life or whatever the answer might be. Having respect for the social, the moral, the ethical benefits of Christianity, that's not true Christianity either. Cultures change. Our standards change. Think also about this man, Nicodemus. Think about where his life went. How God used him. He's mentioned three times in, in the book of John. So this is the first occasion. Then in verse 7, there's some kind of dispute among the Jews... And, and then he jumps in and says, hey, wait a minute. According to our law, we don't condemn a person until we understand what he has said or what he has done. Essentially that uh, people are not 
guilty until proven innocent. That's essentially what, what we have him saying. And then you look in John 19, you have Jesus dead, died on the cross, and then you have two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus here. And apparently, they were both wealthy and influential men. What we're told about Nicodemus is that he and Joseph apparently went to Herod and says, Herod, please, give us Jesus' body. Influential enough that Herod said, go ahead. And here what we're told is that Nicodemus, he provided, was it something like 70 or 100 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes. And you think about how expensive that would have been. Some people claim it was like 150 or $200,000 worth of, of embalming goods. Apparently, Nicodemus was a wealthy man. But what we do see is that there was something about him that loved Jesus, even though he was a Pharisee and part of the Jewish ruling class. And here, what we ought not to do then is despise the day of small beginnings. Zechariah chapter 4 talks about that. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. The small beginnings may be in a church plant. The small beginnings may be in a person's life. As as a person seeks the Lord Jesus. Apparently here with Nicodemus, Jesus was one who was not despising the day of small beginnings. It was Nicodemus seeking. Jesus did not deal with him the same way that he dealt with with all the other Pharisees and the Sadducees. So also you think about how we ought to respond to people. Sometimes it's the most vocal and the most, uh, the most ardent opponent of the gospel. Sometimes that person is the one who becomes the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Our Lord can do and does great things. We should never doubt that. We should never doubt the power of God to save sinners. So this is the first point, the necessity of the new birth for salvation. We have the second point, the nature of the new birth unto salvation. In verses 4 through 8, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it, is, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Here, in verse 4, we have Nicodemus not understanding what Jesus said about this new birth. I told you about this double meaning. Born again, born from above. And Nicodemus, he interprets it the first way. He interprets the born again or the born a second time. And he's scratching his head. He's asking the question, hey, wait a minute. This sounds ludicrous. See there in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You think even about a one-year-old or a two-year-old. This child has grown so big, he can't possibly, or she can't possibly fit back in the mother's womb. And he's saying, what about some grown man? Uh, uh, Men are generally bigger than women. He's saying, it can't be done. He's misunderstanding Jesus. 
And then Jesus clarifies. Earlier he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So if you can't see the kingdom of God, you're not going to enter it. We ought to conclude that. Here, some people claim, there in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. There's all kinds of interpretations of this passage. And one of the most common ones is, oh, water, that's baptism. You have to be baptized. And you have all kinds of people of different groups who claim to be the church who say, you see there, there it says it. Absolutely essential. You have to be water baptized in order to be saved. Sorry. If the word were baptism, there's a word for baptism. And John didn't use the word baptism there. He used water. And perhaps you're asking me then, then what does it mean? Born of the water and the spirit. Well, think for a moment here. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it seems as if there's two things going on in regeneration. One is that the giving of life, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the the work of giving birth to someone who's dead. And the other part, the water, is the washing, that we are washed clean by the Holy Spirit. That, that we are, our sins are washed away. The, the cleansing effect. Here, Jesus continues. And he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What Jesus is saying is, hey, listen. Humans cannot beget spiritual life. You have, you have a man and a woman. You realize that in our society now, things are starting to change, right? When you talk about, hey, you need a man and you need a woman in order to conceive. And apparently, that's even being called into question. You have two men or two women. No, no. You have a man and a woman. Simple statement. man and a woman can only conceive and give birth to a sinner. Someone who has the nature of Adam. The original sin is present. But the bottom line is what Jesus is saying is flesh can give birth to flesh. Flesh cannot give birth to spirit. We cannot produce new life in others. We, we cannot produce new life in ourselves. It's only God, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who can give spiritual life. That's, that's a simple statement here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. God alone gives spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God is the one who made us alive together with Christ. Now this work of regeneration, this is not a small change. You think about a, a caterpillar. Maybe I mean, it's not a perfect analogy. Nothing is regarding the, the spiritual realm. You think about a, a caterpillar. The transformation of a caterpillar to the butterfly 
is not that a caterpillar suddenly grows wings. Is that right? A caterpillar is not a, or, or a butterfly is not a caterpillar that has grown wings. They're completely different, right? That the body is changed. Everything about that, that organism is changed. So also, when you think about someone who becomes a Christian, someone who is given new life, it's not, okay, we took this guy, and with shock therapy, we stopped him from doing certain things, and then we got him to develop new habits. No. That's not, that's not what's happening. You see, we can't, we can't change people like that. See, from the outside, people look in, and, and they might start to think, wait a minute. Well, you believe that because that's how you were raised. Right? You talk to non-Christians, people who are outside, and they say, oh, well, the reason why you believe those things is that's how you were raised. Well, it might be true for some people who were raised in the church. It has no explanation at all for those of you who were raised by non-Christians, and you are now a Christian. You see, there's no, there's no, they don't have an answer for that. Well, well we, can't, we can't explain that one. But if you were raised that way, oh, you're going to continue with it. Well, this is the work of the Spirit that we don't see. That we just see the effect of it. You think about this spiritual death then. What does it mean for someone to be spiritually dead? Well, we look about physical death. Physical death is when the soul of a man is separated from his body. Right? So when, when a man in the hospital starts redlining and... And then the soul separates from the body. That's physical death, right? Can we all agree on that? That the soul separates from the body, then this is death, physical death. But what about spiritual death? Because apparently we ought to understand spiritual death also. Spiritual death is the soul of man being separate from God. Spiritual death is the soul of man being separate from God. What happened in the garden? When God had said, hey, listen, Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The difference was before he sinned that God and man walked together. And then after he sinned, you have the response of Adam. God, I, I heard you walking in the garden. And I was afraid, so I hid. See, this is just the description about how this separation, this loss of fellowship, this loss of communion occurred. This broken fellowship happened. Adam realizing that he is under God's wrath and curse. So here Jesus in verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. There was an itinerant preacher by the name of George Whitfield. That he traveled various places in the country. And he, he preached many different sermons. And they recorded that of his sermons that he preached, he preached about being born again, probably from this very chapter, John chapter 3, something like 300 times. And a woman who was there at a previous sermon said, Hey, Mr. Whitfield, why do you preach so much? about being born again. And he gives her this good answer. He says, look, look at John chapter 3, verse 7. 
Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So this answer is, hey, I preach about being born again because Jesus says you must be born again. There's an importance to being born again. That's why I'm preaching on it, he said to her. And we ought to understand, when Jesus is saying you must be born again, he's not saying, hey, buddy, be born again. Be born from He's not saying, this is something you need to do. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, this is a requirement of something that must be done to you. And we ought to understand here, being born again is not something by your choice. We don't choose to be born again. You see, the analogy that Jesus picked, physical birth, spiritual birth, it was, it was important because the analogies fit here. There's no one who decided to be who decided to be born physically. No one decides, you know what, I want to be born now. No one says, hey, I want to be conceived. That, that's parents' decisions, right? And here also, spiritual birth is fitting because no one chooses to give themselves spiritual birth. No. This is the whole point about this being born again, being born from above. It's something you and I, what you and I cannot do. So, so here... Perhaps some of you are wondering, well, wait a minute. Now why is Jesus speaking about this necessity? Why is it so important? Why, why is he on this topic? Why are you on this topic? It doesn't make sense to command people to give birth to themselves. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Nor is it what I'm saying. God uses means. Means of regeneration is the preaching of God's word. Same as effectual calling, Right? That God uses to choose, chooses to use the means of the word that goes forward. It's the preached word. It's the, the, read, the word that is read. And the scriptures speak about it. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. By the exercise of will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's word is preached. It's read publicly. 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So here, this is what we ought to understand from this. That you and I ought first and foremost to be availing ourselves to the ministry of the word. That we ought to bring ourselves under the ministry of the word. Whether it be in Christ's church. Whether it be in the home. That we ought to be studying God's word. We ought to be reciting. We ought to be memorizing God's word. We ought, we ought to desire that our families. Our loved ones. Our children. That they would constantly be under God's word. And we start to wonder. Especially regarding our children. What's going on? What do they actually catch? What are they hearing? And we don't know when the Lord works. We can even say we don't even know how he works. We're, we're told later the wind, right? We see the effect. But what we ought to do is have ourselves under the ministry of the word. Have other people under the ministry of the word. That we ought to make it a priority in our lives to be in the word. To be under the word. We ought to bear good news to others. 
as we share the good news with them. That we ought to desire that other people would come to hear this good news. You think about the Samaritan woman, the next chapter, John chapter 4. She goes to her neighbors and says, come here, come meet this man who knows everything that I did in my life. So she met him, she met Jesus and says, wow, this man knew all these things about me. And so also, we can say to others, come meet this man, Jesus, the greatest man ever met who is God. He is the one. He is my hope for forgiveness. He is my hope for eternal life. May he be your hope also. And then we also must pray for the mighty work of God. It's not how much we can cram into those ears. It's not it. We have to realize God uses means. He uses the means of his word, preached and read. Conversations, yes. Pleading, yes. But he uses the means of the word, but it's the spirit that gives life. And that we ought to be praying for that. It's not, hey, however hundreds or thousands of hours of reading the word or, or hearing the word preached. That's not, you ask 10,000 hours. It's not how many hours. It's the work of God. He chooses to use means, but it's the work of God. And there, Jesus says in, in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What we notice is the effect of the Holy Spirit. We don't exactly understand how, how the Holy Spirit gives life. And notice here, this is also this play on words. In Hebrew, the word for spirit, the word for wind, the word for breath, it's the same word. Right? So he's, saying, he's talking about the wind. So you notice the wind, right? There's a hurricane. It tears the roof off your house. There's, there's an effect of the wind. Right? You open the door, you see the leaves blowing. Right? It's a windy day. It's not, not a good day to do certain things. Right? It might be a good day to, to fly a kite. Right? Most people don't fly kites anymore. But a windy day you need to fly a kite. And here, what Jesus is saying is that what we notice about spiritual birth and the work of the Spirit is that we see its effect. It affects people. Born again people are those who manifest the fruits of the Spirit. You'll know a tree by its fruits. And here he's saying, you know it because this person who was once cursing Jesus is now praising him. The one who despised the word is now reading the word and telling others about the word. They're believing the good news, the free offer of the gospel. That there is a repentance. The person who once said, hey, I love my sin, is suddenly saying, you know what? I am forsaking my sin. I'm giving those up. Was it in Ephesus, in the book of, of Acts, when Paul was in Ephesus, spoke about how these people who worship idols, who were into sorcery and witchcraft, that they had these books, right? They had these, these books of spells worth a whole lot of money. But they were destroying these books because they said, this sorcery and witchcraft, we cannot do anymore. Whatever value those things, whatever, how expensive those things were, burning them. 
Because now we have a conduit to the spirit world, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is that one way to the Father, and we don't need to contact any more of those evil spirits because He is the only one that we need. And that this is the effect of new life. Here, think about this good news. Jesus finishes by saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. These Jews were bitten by poisonous snakes. And God had said, Moses lift up this bronze serpent. Those who look to the bronze serpent will be healed. And Jesus says in the same way, he must be lifted up. He must be raised up on the cross. That he would die in the place of sinners such as you and me. That he would die the death we deserve to die. The good news of the gospel is that the death he died, he died in the place of sinners. That you ought to believe upon Jesus Christ. That Jesus, when you died on the cross, you died for me. You died for my sins. You died for the sins of all of your beloved people. And the very life that God requires of us, perfect righteousness, you say, Jesus, you live that life for me. We receive it by faith. When you died on the cross, you died paying for my sins. You washed me clean. And that the very righteousness I lack, God says, where is your righteousness? And we say, it's on the cross with Jesus. That is my righteousness. What are, you, what are you going to do to earn your way into heaven? I can't do anything. Jesus paid it all. He lived it. He lived the perfect life. That's the free offer of Jesus Christ for salvation. Embrace this good news for eternal life. Believe upon it. Trust in Him. He is the one who gives new life. And that He uses the means of His word to give this life. You trust in Him and embrace Him. And rejoice in Him. We go to our God together in prayer.